Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast, which presents the interviews from our live shows in Minneapolis. Our guests will talk about intergenerational LGBTQI issues are Philippe Cunningham, who is the city council member representing the 4th Ward in North Minneapolis, and Charlie Rounds, who is the program manager for Mossier Social Action and Innovation Center. Our media sponsor this season is MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can read local, state, and national news at MinPost.com. All right. Thank you both so much for being here. I'm super excited. Thank um, you for having Oh, us. I'm supposed to... I, can I get a glass... Can we get a glass of water? I mean, the beer is good, but just um, to... Uh, you know, hydrate. So, uh, so thank you. I, I want. We're here to geek out on uh, queer theory and lots of things. But I do want to just ask. You started at Minneapolis City Council, and it's the theater of public policy. So I feel like I should just start with like, how's council? Like, is it? I, yeah. Is it? Is it like? And to me, it seems like it's oh, the first few weeks of school. Like people are getting to know each other. That's actually who do you sit super, at lunch with? That's um, super real. Like. Who's with who? Who's beefing with who? I have to say, I love the job. I really do. Um, I kind of had a an idea of what the job would look like because I worked in the mayor's office prior to getting elected. And so I felt like I had an idea of what it might look like. Thank you. And um, so when I actually got into office, I actually loved the job way more than I even expected to. Why? Um, because I'm such a nerd. Like, I'm, I'm constantly learning all the time. There's more and more and more. Like, the depth and the breadth of work is, and the scale of it is just significant. Like, I am responsible for 32,000 lives. So, I've, I just one more question on this, which is, I, I've heard uh, other elected officials say, you learn a lot that's very surprising when you first get into office. So, is there anything that's been a particularly like, oh my gosh, I never would have realized that until you, you actually got into the role? Hmm. I would say that probably not necessarily institutionally like, ooh, City Hall, I've seen something yeah. new now. Like, I would say that actually probably I now have found myself uh, unexpectedly stepping into like a truth teller space where, yeah. you know, it's I'll, I'll I will find, like, hey, we need to make sure we're naming this truth and naming these facts in these spaces. And um, so I'm finding myself stepping into that more frequently. I'm a policy nerd. Like, I I really love the job and wanted the job because I'm a huge policy nerd and I really love my community. Um, and so all of that put together. Wow, that's great. So, um, all right, let's let's geek out on, on queer theory and social movement theory. Uh, so um, I, I almost wanted to just start the show with, uh, with Charlie. You're doing work right now with uh, Mosier and generally, and it's uh, I kept you know framing tonight as intergenerational LGBTQ issues, which obviously uh, was popular, but surprisingly popular, I think, in some ways. Like, usually wouldn't say, like, oh, we're going to have an intergenerational discussion, and people are like, oh, yeah, that's my Monday night. So... Uh, <laughs> Can you just talk us, what is the work that you're doing and, and why? Uh, sure. Uh, I'll, I'll give you, a, I think, a pretty good example. My boss is 21 years old, uh, about to be 22, but he is my boss. And Nick and I have been working together for two years, and we founded Mosier last year. Uh, we were on an airplane back from Baltimore uh, last year. It's a good direction to be it's coming a, it from is Baltimore. A good, it's a good direction. Don't ever tell John Waters what you just said. Uh, <laughs> if he's ever on the show, I Some of you don't I know won't. who John Waters is. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. 
Hairspray, cereal mom. Okay. I I did say we were going to like geek out on queer theory, but we're going to John Waters already. Wow. All right. Right. What cuts of meat did she use to kill three people in that movie? Um, Anyway, the the point of uh, what I was getting at is so Nick and I are flying back, and we were talking about all of these things. I'm about to be 63 years old, and I started, you know, Nick. And I love him to death, and I I support his energy. But he said, I'm just so gall darn tired of white dudes running the show. And 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 I know was that just a general statement? Yeah, no, it's I, a very general statement. And but, not, but, but no, really specific to the LGBT. I'm just mm-hmm. going to use the word queer. Uh, if anybody's offended by that, gay is loaded because people think it's male only. I'm just going to use queer. I was queer bashed in high school, and I love taking that word back, right? So, like, I'm a queer. And so, anyway, yes. uh, so we're starting, you know, of, of white dudes running the, the queer movement. And I said, well, yeah, you know, and sometimes we were running the, the queer movement. Um, but you know how many of us died of AIDS? And, and do you know who Rock Hudson is? And it's not, do you know who Rock Hudson is because he was this hunky actor, but here was somebody that was able to get to the power of Hollywood and be there because he was in the closet, because he could not live to his full self. And so when young LGBTQ queer kids don't realize that we all went through a lot of hell, including white men, um, I, we need to share that story. I want Nick to keep driving on the diversity, all diversity, um, but I want him to know what we went through too. Uh, so uh, let, that person agrees with you. Uh, so um, she's the only one, but thank you. No, so, and I can actually see you, so the, the, I can't see there's, anybody. Else. There's a piece of this that I, I'm really interested in talking about <laughs> oh. because, as I, I think you you preface some of these talks with. Um, a lot of minority communities have sort of a natural lineage to hold, some degree. Hold on, no? let, let's. This is going to be fun. Yeah, go. <laughs> Look at my life right now. We're going to be talking about. They're talking about minority communities, and I'm awkwardly sitting in between. But continue. Yeah, no, no, that's good. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, uh, this is actually the piece that I was trying to cue up. Is like, um, so because. Uh, there is, in some ways, like a lineage piece or like there's a hereditary piece of uh, certain minority communities. Like if you are Asian, your parents are very likely Asian uh, unless you're adopted or whatnot. That is absolutely not true for being gay, trans, uh, lesbian and whatnot. And so the transfer of knowledge happens very differently. And actually, I did want to cue this up for you. Like to, I mean, the, this is, we're getting really deep into intersectionality really quick, but like, is that, uh, that's cause that's where I live. Can you, can you like, <laughs> did you, I, can you talk about like those different experiences, I guess then of growing up, like having these variety of identities and maybe having models for one set of identity and not models for another set of identities, or maybe you found those different identities in different places. Yeah, I think that, thank you for asking that question. Yeah, so I spent the first 23 years of my life as a black woman, and the past almost eight now as a black man, um, my anniversary, my eighth anniversary is on June 30th. Uh, anniversary is the first time I ever did a tea shot, <laughs> testosterone shot. Um, but uh, so I n- navigated and learned how to survive in the world as a black woman. I learned how to be able to live in that place between the crossroads of 
um, sexism and racism and the grossness of those two things mixed together. And then at 23, I transitioned. Um, testosterone worked very quickly for me, so I masculinized very rapidly. And I was actually very feminine as a woman before I transitioned. So it was quite a drastic shift. And so that was that was a big change. As, as much as you're willing to share, I can you talk? You say you know you learned how to navigate this very difficult space. How how did how did you, I mean everyone has very different experiences of how they learn these things. But I'm curious for for you. You know, was it role models? Was it you on your own? What where? How did you figure these things out over that course of time? Yeah, it, it's. I think that it's. Um, a big part there's pers- part personality that goes into it <laughs> um, of like you, tenacity personality? Really? <laughs> tenacity to be able to um, keep going I was raised in the cornfields of Illinois just to give folks context of where I was raised cornfields getting hey, a round of applause cornfields you get that we've live got the, we've got the same I fan know. But but we you are you are the only one we can see. So <laughs> thank you. But so that's that's where I was raised, and really, um, I like pretty much from every angle, um, I was being reflected back that I was not enough. That I was you know just from a very defi- deficit perspective. But I managed to hold on to this light that really what it was was that folks just could not see me. That it wasn't that I wasn't that I was less than, and I think that a big part of that has to do with the Im- immense privilege of experiencing unconditional love. Mm. Like my parents um, held it down and really, you know, gave me a space to be truly loved no matter what, and so um, it helped me be able to feel comfortable, full and complete. Still, um, not to say that things didn't stick and that there wasn't un. un- learning to be done, but um, I think that actually um, unconditional love is a privilege we don't talk enough about. There's, I, there's elements of this story, like, and I'm curious, actually, uh, well, let me just frame it as a question as opposed to projecting anything. How much does, like, what the, this story, uh, Philippe's story, sort of resonate with some of these kinds of conversations and things that you're starting to do some of this work of, like, talking to folks across different generations? So, uh, you know, I, I Googled the word. I don't know if anybody in the room is Jewish because I can't see you. And even if I could, I that wouldn't That would be know. weird if you were like, right. oh, yeah, yeah. Jewish. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, um, Seder. If you know what Seder is, yeah. it's this, you get together and you talk about the history. And, and we don't have a queer Seder, right? We don't get together on the Academy Awards or the Grammys and, and sit down and start, and I don't mean to make light of Seder. But we really don't have these conversations of the history, whether it be since Stonewall, whether it be from Bayard Rustin leading the March on Washington and all of these. There's a great film out there called Out of the Past, which are all these great queer leaders that never the ones that never get talked about. Right. So these kids growing up in high school or junior high or high uh, elementary, whatever. So back to the family structure is uh, sex education. Uh, Odd place to go, but you know, if you're LGBT and your parents aren't, and you're going to go to your dad as a young gay boy at 16 and start asking dad about gay male sex, he probably doesn't know anything. He's like, yep, stop, stop. Yeah, don't ever talk to me about that again. And you're right, not going to happen. 
And, and so people say, well, we've got the internet now, so you can just go to the internet. That's not your parents. Right. Right? Well. And, right? Uh, and so, so <laughs> back, back to your question, my God, I'm acting like an elected official. Yes, we'll get you that building permit. Um, <laughs> is, that was it, only funny to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I read the strip on the way here about some building that's not or going to get built. or, um, But... But really, really, the 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 point uh, that was long ago gone. The conversation I'm trying to have right, right now, specifically, is with LGBTQ people my age that may think it is time to check out, uh, and and we don't get to see. Okay, we so really this, yeah. don't get to check out. So this is interesting to me because, and um, your fellow council member Andrea Jenkins, I've heard her speak Woo. about uh, this as well. Uh, she actually, I read, I heard her read a poem, which was called, I think, uh, if this wasn't the title of the poem, it was the refrain, like, uh, "So you all get to get married, but here are all the things that like still uh, aren't sort of set up, uh, aren't just in the world for a trans person and whatnot." So I'm curious, if th- is that something that you find as well that like, you know, that there was sort of a, a marriage path, like everybody was super excited, and then some folks just started checking out, like of the you know queer movement, however you want to define it. Well, many nonprofit organizations actually closed down after yeah. after it passed. So, like, literally, people were like, "Done," yeah. and then, and the, a lot of us were like, "Wait," but a lot of people could still be fired. Right. That's pretty well, can basic. You, can you just say, since you're the public policy nerd, can you say why can like why that fight in particular? Yeah. Yeah. So um, there, a, there is no national level non discrimination law that protects um, LGBT folks, um, and so that means that if it is not passed at the state level, then in your state it is okay to discriminate against LGBT folks for housing, employment. <laughs> Uh, credit, other like there are like banking, other things like that. So, uh, so you you know, non <coughs> some nonprofits shut down and whatnot. I mean, uh, wh- Charlie and I were talking a bit before the show, and and I'm curious uh, your experience with this of uh, that again. LGBTQ is an odd community in some ways. Uh, it's a queer community uh, for a variety of reasons, but in part because it's like we're tying together people who have very sort of disparate personalities in a lot of other cases, which you could say of a lot of minority communities, but like the things that we're trying to tie together with this community maybe are particularly like disparate. I don't know. Maybe that's not fair. Sure, but you know what? We don't have a choice. I'm sorry. Uh, the the reality is we don't fit into a certain mold. All of us have something in common. And and there are things that are going to differentiate all of us. The other thing is, as a community, we go across this whole spectrum of race and gender and economics. We, we, we really do. And that's not always clear. But what I would say when HRC was trying to figure out whether to start dealing with Human trans rights campaign, camp- not, that, yeah. not Hillary Rodham Clinton. Not Hillary yeah. Rodham Clinton. I, I think <laughs> Mrs. Clinton was pretty darn good on the issues. Um, but HRC had a huge struggle with, you know, trans issues. And there were Marcus Waterbury, if you know Marcus here in town. Um, you know, I remember Marcus confronting me in front of the uh, HRC national dinner. 
and said, Charlie, I'm sorry I'm out here protesting, but I'm trans and I don't feel included here. We've had to struggle. Any rights movement struggles uh, with stuff. And so I, I just think it's like, okay, maybe we shouldn't be all together, but boy, if this isn't a time to stick together when we are under attack every single day from this current administration, 33 states where we can be married on Sunday and fired on Monday, is this just, to me, is not a time to... To move apart. You have more notes than I do now, so I'm gonna like just turn it over to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I wanted to to add to that, um, talking about um, how the the fabric of the LGBT community is just so diverse and how yeah. it's woven together. And actually, referring back to Bayard Rustin. Um, at, towards the end of his life, he actually talked about how he believed that LGBTQ rights was the next phase of the civil rights movement mm. because everybody is, like, you, it doesn't matter what your background is, you can be LGBT. Does that help, though? Because I, 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 I have had conversations with folks who say, who have said to me, oh, at, in a few years, and that might be an exaggeration, but at some point, we're not even going to say gay, straight, uh, when anything. It's just whatever. Like, nobody's going to care one way or the other. That's cool. Is, is that cool, though? Because does that dissolve some level of the, like, movement or identity? Can you kind of keep something cohesive that way if there is not some sort of, like, connecting tissue, some sort of sense of identity there? Did you want to jump in on that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like... Uh, so uh, I used to own a, a gay bar called Boom. You may have remembered it up on East Hennepin Avenue. And about a year uh, after, Kelly remembers. Every, yeah, yeah. About a year after we opened it, the Time Magazine, Time Magazine had a cover that said, 10 industries that won't be here in 10 years. And like number three was gay bars. Yeah. Right, because people won't need to go to gay bars anymore, et, 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 et cetera, et cetera. We will, as we become mainstreamed, lose some sense of identity. That's normal. But you have to look. There's always pushback to rights movements. If we got a federal law to prohibit discrimination federally, the pushback, the hate that is going to be directed to our community, and we're not going to have organizations to deal with that, wake up, people. So I want to clarify. Yeah. So when I say, that's cool, it yeah. is because I think about it from a place of if it doesn't matter what our labels are because anybody can just be interested in who they are interested in and that's cool, then I'm cool with that. Like, um, And, <laughs> hey, we got the pansexual in the back. Um, <laughs> so, um, so just to add that component of yeah. it. And, and I wanted to also go back to, to the HRC point and, and really make sure that we are connecting history to the present. Mm. The reason why there would be a trans person standing outside of an HRC event protesting is because in 2008, they, they deliberately took trans rights off of their platform so that it would be able to pass. They knew it would be too hard to include gender identity, so they said... We'll save that for later. Trickle down um, social justice. And so, and then they, what? I don't think HRC shut down. They had their biggest fundraising quarter in history last Hopefully year. Hopefully it's going to they help are making. Folks. They are bringing in more money. Uh, okay, so uh, we're not getting paid by HRC tonight, so I'm tired of talking about <laughs> no, them. No, that, uh, that wasn't, it's just the, important that wasn't to name. a commercial. It's very, yeah. But it's important to name, though, because 
Yeah. Here we are sitting in a sta- on a stage saying we got to stick together now more than ever. Right. But history has clearly shown that we have not done that. And so we need right. to acknowledge that trans folks um, and also when we add those extra layers of intersectionality like folks of color and then add that all together, um, then we, I mean, we are just starting to be able to create space for ourselves in the conversation. So, No, I, th- I, I think that that's... So, um, so Charlie's talked already about the things that he's hoping that uh, young uh, queer people will learn. What is it that uh, older queer people need to learn about? And I think you've very articulately started to start, talk about several of them. But uh, you know, if you let's just pretend we're at one of these queer satyrs, uh, and um, we're I, I was about to say we're sitting shiva, but then we wouldn't be talking no, very much. No. Then it'd be very sad. No. Uh, two two yeah. separate things. Two, my yeah, my Jewish history is not our Jewish. Anyway, so what would you want to be talking about um, to stop me from myself? <laughs> so are you talking about like what would I like for older LGBTQ yeah. folks? Um, I would say that I, I would say be willing to question everything in your reality um, because sometimes the consciousness in which we are brewed in our reality it shifts from generation to generation. And so our reality universally shifts, and we need to be able to hear one another about, well, this is my reality now, and that this reality now does not invalidate um, the challenges and the, rea- the reality of, when someone, of what someone else's consciousness was brewed in. Um, and so, but I will also say that I am absolutely imbued with audacity because of the fact that so many folks have done the work for so long before me. And so, um, so I'm also humble enough to know um, that my work is an extension of my elders and ancestors who have done the work long before me. So, so let's talk about then, and I should uh, preface, we're going to open it up for everybody uh, to ask questions of our guests in the second half of the show. But um, uh, pragmatically, tactically thinking about some of this social movement work. And um, and I'm interested in both of your perspectives because you are an elected official. And so you are uh, the embodiment of being able to bring people together and actually take action to something. And so I'm curious, what is the... Is there is there some tactic or something that uh, the movement, if we're thinking about the queer movement in this way, should be doing more in order to, like... Uh, at least keep it together as much as it has been or bring it better together, bring it uh, to a place where it can potentially resist things that are coming at it and move forward on things that are important? This is a complicated movement because it is a social movement of all social movements. You can be somebody who is a disability rights activist and also be queer and trans like there i mean there there are so there are so many histories so many um so many stories of trauma and harm that is being brought in to the community overall from all of these different aspects. So if we figure out as a community how to address these challenges, we really are setting a model for the rest of society because we as a microcosm of the rest of society, um, if we are intentional about 
unlearning white supremacy and unlearning what misogyny, like how these things are seeped into our brains, if we are able to undo that and then look at one another and see our shared humanity while also holding the specialness and the preciousness of our differences, like that is when we'll be able to actually make social revolution. And yes, that is absolutely an applause line. Um, but uh, there's part of me, uh, again, just thinking of this, how? Like, that's, uh, we want to do well, that. Well, good, because yeah, I, yeah. I actually like this part, too. Yeah, good, how? Um, so, well, first... Um, I'm going to write this down. Okay. So it depends on where your role is in the movement. Um, mine is that I'm a policy wonk. And so what I did is I spent a lot of time reading and nerding out and figuring and talking to people and, and doing the work um, to be able to equip myself to then run for office. My job now in office is to create space for other folks who have been historically and currently uh, marginalized from, this, from the system and having a voice. And so, um, so it's actually about being intentional about systemic change, but I cannot make systemic change in a silo. Um, I need support from the community to continue to show up, not just during elections, but actually like when I'm trying to work on things around affordable housing and we know that that disproportionately affects LGBT youth, um, when we know that, we talk about intergenerational, I think to myself all the time, our homeless youth are our children and we shouldn't be okay with our kids being homeless. And so, um, so anyway, that's, you know, I, I do think very tangibly, but it's about building an inside outside strategy with the system. Um, and also it is so like, there is so much work that has to be done cross-culturally in the yeah. LGBT community before we can really, like there's so much self-reflection that has to happen um, in the community before, like, I feel like we really honestly can move forward. I, I, you know, Philippe is in government. And, and we can look at government solutions all we want. Business moves before government does. That is not a criticism of government. No, I mean, it's to move. It, 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 it's it, is, it is not. You know, I'm going to criticize you for a lot of shit tonight, stuff no. tonight. Um, oh, that's your one. No, uh, that was my, my, one, my one swear word. Um, um, if, Let's see. I, I really, truly believe that we have, to have, we have to work within the corporate community that are not democracies. Corporations are not democracies. Corporations can make decisions by a bunch of mostly white people sitting in a room that can actually change society. Uh, if we look at Target on the issue of uh, use of bathrooms with your gender identity, how many of us have called Target and supported them on this issue? I, I will Do you know how much they have suffered? I'm sorry, I'll be real yeah. brief. In deeply red districts around this country because of their commitment on this very important issue. And, and yet, you know, do you go out and buy a $50 Target gift certificate or somebody else? I believe the corporate, we have to work, if you work within a company or you consume a company's products, that we've got to support them to help moving societal change. I was uh, just as an anecdote. Mm. I remember Target uh, several years ago. Uh, they several or their their 
corporate-wise, supported uh, a very conservative um, candidate for governor here in Minnesota. Um, and then I remember I was actually at um, an LGBT youth fair like the next day, and Target was everywhere in order to try and like balance it out. Uh, it felt like, uh, which I I I, it's, uh, I feel kind of gross about it, but I don't know exactly how to think about it. I think that there's probably some piece of that. Right, that, but the, the CEO that did that is gone. Um, they know it was a mistake. And, and, you know, is anybody in a relationship here? Are you ever with a person you love that makes a mistake? You know what? We have to have the strength to look at Target. I they, really... they made a mistake with Tom Emmer, but now they're doing the right thing. And I, don't, I see us boycotting them back then, eight years ago or whatever it was, but I don't see us standing up and supporting them now. Are you in a relationship with Target? Um, I have no stock. Uh, so, and I don't take any free stuff from them. Uh, so, uh, um, I don't. Uh, that's great. Uh, so, with the, I mean, the last piece on this, which I think is interesting, and because uh, to tie some of these pieces together, I don't know, just to throw uh, certain people under the bus. I mean, we were talking earlier about uh, that. I think you gave me the statistic that um, only 5% of... Le- less than 5% of the LGBT community, we have consistent data on this, less than 5% of the LGBT community wow. gives to an LGBT organization. That's data. It's hard data. It's consistent data. We're not any less philanthropic than the general community. But I mean, in fairness, because they're gay, it's just infinite amounts of money still, though, yeah. right? Like, they're all dinks, and so... No, that's not true. But, um, but so how do we change that, right? Like, how do, how do you start to... I, I mean, there's a lot of talk that you were saying of the internal work. I mean, it seems like this is a place already where it's like uh, the, you're, the, the community already isn't supporting itself. So how do you kind of move that ball forward? I'm sorry, can you say that again? <laughs> you mean my question was rambling? Um, so, you know, we have less than 5%. There was no shade in that. Uh, <laughs> the podcast audience can't see the eyes that you gave me. Um, so uh, the, the, there's less than 5% of the GLBTQ community who's supporting actual these organizations that do some of this work and whatnot. Um, so how do you start to change that? How do you actually get more buy-in uh, from the community uh, more broadly to, to start doing some of the things to showing up in the ways that you're talking about. Raising the wages so people can afford to give chari- give to charities and to nonprofits. I mean, real talk. Like, we, you just said yourself, the, the immediate image that comes to mind of a gay person right. is an affluent white gay man who has right. lots of money to give. So I'm just going to name the folks... I'm going to name the experience and the reality, talk about pragmat- like being pragmatic about it. Um, but in general, though, I think, um, I think that there, we, again, self-reflection is necessary to be able to recognize when you are not able to see where your areas of privilege are. And because of the fact that folks aren't necessarily feeling, especially like if you look here in the Twin Cities, it's like, I think that folks can really take it for granted how safe and out we can be here. Um, I mean, I moved here from Chicago, and I moved here specifically because somebody said it was safe, oh, safer here for, as a black queer person. And so um, 
I lost where I was going. No, but that's actually a great point. Take that, Chicago. Yeah, like... Um... But, but really, though, oh, about giving. Um, and so, but ultimately the point is that um, I think that it takes time for there to be intentional connection between the work that's happening and folks who are living their everyday lives, not in survival mode. Like, um, because I think that a lot of times we think of folks who need to be giving more and it's kind of like a lot of folks are just trying to get by but how about the folks who just forget about nonprofits because they don't have to think about them those are the folks that we have to figure out how to help get them connected back to that so so can i be the policy nerd please geek here uh the most philanthropic states in the country are alabama and mississippi this has nothing to do with economics nothing the most charitable people in the country are people of faith, and that is charity. Charity is not a thousand, five thousand, hundred thousand dollar gift. Charity is a ten dollar gift. We're talking about people that aren't even giving ten dollars, and I agree with you totally. I'm talking about getting money out of those people that can afford to do it. Yeah, which is but 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 let's look at at this is it this is the entire economic spectrum if we're talking less than five percent we're not just talking about no we shouldn't ask people that are just getting by to give it's we're talking about people that are very well situated to give that are not giving and part of the problem is our identity how much of our life every day is our lgbtq selves for some, it might be a lot. For some, it's like you go to work, you live in Minneapolis, you, you blah, blah, blah. You may not feel that your queerness is that big of your life, but your dog is, right? And so you give to the Humane Society. You're an opera fanatic or an orchestra or, or whatever. Or let's take the other extreme. You believe in homelessness or hunger, and so you give to a food shelf or you give to a homeless organization. I mean, that is part of the challenge, is our LGBTQ is what you guys did the zero to six, I think, out here. Mm. It'd be interesting for people to stand up and go from zero to 100 of what percentage of your day do you think, oh, I did that because I'm queer. Well, uh, that would be very interactive part of the show. Uh, that... <laughs> That we're not doing tonight. <laughs> we only have time for questions. Yeah, so, okay, so there's so much more to talk about, but for right now, I'm going to uh, turn the stage over to the cast of the Theater of Public Policy. But first, can we do a tremendous round of applause? <laughs> Councilmember Billy Cunningham, Charlie Rounds, so we're going to take I our seat. So you you were, do you want to say? Like... <laughs> so I actually have a funny story, because, y'all, I did live in a gay house. Um <laughs> It was an LGBT co-op in Berkeley, California, y'all. It was like a real... It was called the Oscar Wilde Co-op. And I was coming from... Oscar Wilde? The Oscar Wilde Co-op. And it was in, like, Greek Row. I have no idea how the hell that happened. They were like, the sorority house is empty. Let's put a bunch of gays in it. And then um, it was a... I went from the cornfields of Illinois, y'all, to that. There were things that happened in the basement... During the first week that I was like, I'm from the cornfields. It was a lot to handle. So anyway, questions. Just want to tell about my gay house. <laughs> it's just so, because I keep coming back to like a Twilight Zone thing, like, oh, send him out to the cornfield. So um, uh, do you have, it if feels you have like a, that. more, more references only two people get. So, uh, so uh, if you have a question, raise your hand. I will come towards you in a non-threatening manner. Oh, look at it. Oh. 
This is a very this is a very logistical question. So, in in the there's been a lot of letters used. We've had a lot of letters. You, you, all of everybody, I think, has used a different set of letters. LGBT, LGBTQ, all the, whatever. How do these decisions get made? I'm just curious about within the movement. Is there like a lot of discussion about who is within the uh, within the name? Because I, it seems significant, and maybe it's like just kind of very informal, but maybe there's a lot of very formal discussions about that. I'm just kind of curious. And is it controversial? Please do start. You, uh, Charlie, you and I were talking about this downstairs, actually. So there's a bunch of power brokers in Berkeley <laughs> uh, in, in queer houses. Uh, yes, who, may, who have these conversations? Uh, so uh, to answer that, and I'm, I'm very biased, uh, I'm a linguist, and, and that is my background. Uh, there are literally power brokers in New York, Washington, and San Francisco that make these decisions. And they get together in their six-plus-figure jobs in Manhattan, the Castro, and Northwest Washington, uh, very privileged people of huge economic means, and they just sit down and decide what it's going to be. And I, it angers me to no end. I use the term PCQ, pretentious coastal queens. Um, and, and that's why I think we have to shift the power of this movement back to the Midwest. You know, you can look at the last election. The, the, the queer movement started here. Jack Baker, Mitch McConnell. Um, if Mitch you look, McConnell? Or Mitch, not Mitch McConnell. Michael. He was a pioneer, uh, girl. Uh, uh, um, Don't you dare change our history. You know, I'm if, glad yeah, I didn't boy, like that. Was that well, you know, if anybody's got pictures of him having sex at the Minneapolis airport. Um, but but I, I, I really do. Steve... Steve N. Dean that started the human rights campaign, a graduate of the University of Minnesota. If you look at the Minneapolis City Council right now, Minnesota the first state to include transgender in statewide protections. we got to move this back because I'll tell you, these power brokers living in these three cities are not in touch with reality of the people that have to lead these lives. And the last thing I'll say, and I promise I'll let you talk, is... How do we sit down with somebody that is actually sympathetic to our movement that is not one of those letters and expect them to understand how all of this shifts every day? And we turn them off where I think there's a lot of people that want to be part of our movement, but we've got to be able to come, and you talked about this so much, we've got to come to where they are as well. And so, I'm sorry, it's just an issue near and dear to my heart. And to okay. me, that's how okay. it happened. Council member? Yeah. Um, I would say that, generally speaking, it's... Um, I would say that, overall, that a lot of times language is extracted from um, other communities and then are um, then made mainstream, which is um, some of the language I feel like we've seen in the LGBTQ movement. I think also, though, really, it's kind of like a tipping point of identity and, like, visibility, because um, a lot of times it was the gay and lesbian movement, right? And then it was, like, there was intentional disenfranchisement of trans folks, gender non-binary folks, et cetera. Um, and so then as time went on the, and folks became more visible, it just became a tipping point of whether or not that was included or not. And so um, I do think, you know, there is, there is definitely this 
executive piece and really that executive piece extracting um, language from from other communities that are not in that space. So. Okay, I have to get to some other questions. That was a wonderful time. Oh, hi. Um, Charlie, you said that if 5 to 10% of your funding comes from the queer community, then where does the rest of it come from? No, um, actually, I'm, I'm glad. I, I will clarify that. Less than 5% of LGBT people in the United States give to an LGBT organization. Okay. So, and just to that point, less than 1% of all foundation funding, or we say institutional funding, less than 1% goes to LGBT issues. So if you're the Minneapolis Foundation, the St. Paul Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Margaret A. Cargill Foundation, you take all those big foundations, less than 1% of their money comes to our community. And then disaggregate that by LGBTQ, and then see about how much money actually is going to trans-specific gender identity-related stuff. Yeah. It's horribly low. Yep. Uh, okay, uh, other questions. I am willing to run up the stairs. You just have to raise your hand. I'll come over here, but <laughs> if you raise your hand now, Hi. Intersectionality, really big long word. How do we explain intersectionality to someone who doesn't want to hear about intersectionality? I spend a lot of time meditating over this question. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I would say that um, hmm, it depends on what kind of mood you catch me in. Um, <laughs> well, I think that the way that I have explained it to folks, so let me use my mother as an example because um, I think she's a fantastic example of allyship and solidarity and she, um, she, was, she had a really hard time before really understanding um, about racism and about, my mother's white just so folks understand, but she had a hard time understanding about racism and, and homophobia and, and transphobia and things like that. And um, when I transitioned um, from being a black woman to being a black man, it was like when I explained to her about like now my interactions with police and being afraid of it, my interactions with police in a new way, um, and she has a white son, and it was like there was like this connection that hadn't been made before. But then it took her understanding that if an undocumented immigrant is going to be deported, that like I'm not safe either. Like me as a black queer trans person, like I am certainly not safe. And so understanding the interconnectivity of if someone else who was marginalized is harmed, harmed, so am I. And, like, there was kind of, like, a bit of a connection she hadn't made before. So we just need to have a black son and a, a white son. And, uh, no, I, I'm just trying So like, Yeah, it, no, yeah. I gave a very specific story. So I yeah. would say, um, so I would say that, God, this is a really hard question. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, I would say that, First, I need other white folks to have this conversation more with other white folks. Um, and the way that that's helpful is for white folks to take time to read um, 
literature, non like nonfiction, fiction of folks of color to be able to understand perspectives and experiences um, from firsthand perspective. Um, and then being able to create compassion um, for other white folks in that because it's asking a lot of emotional energy and labor. But I will say that to add the layers for folks to understand, it's... Um, does anybody else have a good answer to this question? Because I honestly, I, I, I think that one of the challenges that I have is at this point in my life, I'm really having a hard time finding the energy to explain to people that I'm a human and that I have a hard experience in my life. So that's why I'm having a hard time finding the words. But let me ask my white husband, because he's oh, good at this. This is if good. I may. Will you introduce yourself? Yeah. Hi, I'm the white husband, Lane Cunningham. <laughs> What is the question? <laughs> you raised your hand. You looked eager to answer. That's because I love you and I support you. <laughs> so my apologies, everyone. I thought he had... So it was about how do you talk about intersectionality in a way... So uh, my husband is also trans and queer, just so folks know, so he's also bringing that lens to it. And so how do you have conversations with other white folks to help them understand intersectionality better? And can you do that in, like, 30 seconds or less? No, I can't. Because each person is very complicated. Honestly, it's about finding a way to connect with that person and their individual experience. Um, so I think, I really, I, I don't understand how Philippe's story about his mom did not answer the question, to be honest with you. Because maybe the part that wasn't clear is that he's, he's black and then he also has a white brother, right? So like, his mother, who is white, also has a white son. And so he's much older than Philippe. He has, uh, she had a particular lens and, and, you know, raising him and seeing him as a, as a white boy growing up, you know, and then, and then she has all of a sudden a black son um, who's experiencing um, all of these issues. And, and so she was forced to really um, think about it in a different way. And so I think that that answers the question perfectly. Think about what you would do if that was your child. Thanks, uh, babe. Okay, so did were there other questions? I am. Please, please. Uh, no, uh, 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 okay, right over. So, Charlie, this one's for you, and it's not meant as a read, but there's been a lot of talk about what we're not doing right, and I'm just wondering: are there things that we are doing well that we should be celebrating? What what gives you hope? What stories should we be out there? talking about more, and you specifically, you, you've talked about fundraising a lot, and yeah. I work in fundraising, and funders want to give to really exciting projects that give hope to people and not to deficiency, so I'm just curious. You know, it, 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 um, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Um, Nick, my boss, is giving the commencement speech to the Carlson School of Management on Monday, um, and I won't get emotional. I'm, I'm so proud of him. But as, I, as he was writing the speech, I said, Nikki, throw out the challenges to the graduate, but you always leave with solutions. You always end the conversation with solutions. And so I want to talk to you about, very briefly, <laughs> where we have succeeded. I'll be brief. Um, we have done well. We have changed the hearts and minds of tens of millions of Americans. I get to work with my husband, who's standing in the back. We're in Warsaw, Poland in November, um, working with a community that's really under fire. Um, we work, I personally have been able to work with the transgender Ugandan refugees in northern Kenya 
in the Kakuma refugee camp. And we've got the American Refugee Committee sitting here in blankety-blank North Minneapolis that is now the global leader on LGBTQ issues. And they are going to do a dynamic job. The Center for Victims of Torture. Let's talk about intersectionality. The Center of Victims of Torture, based in St. Paul, Minnesota, there's intersectional, both sides of the river, is <laughs> the Center for Victims of Torture runs the only LGBTQ torture survivor program in, I hate this blankety-blank term, the Global South, um, in Nairobi, Kenya. These are Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota-based institutions. And I'm sorry, it goes back to your question why I screamed about the coast. The solutions are here, folks. It ain't going to happen from some big blankety-blank institution in San Francisco or New York. Yes, it's, girl, tell it, them. It's got to be direct action. And those answers are coming right here. And I'm going to go back to Target, and I don't have any stock my dad worked for Dayton's for 26 years, and it put me through college. I feel like I should college. stop you, but, but go ahead. No, I, I do want to end. It is Target is a good thing. From the Tom Emmer donation in 2008 to where they're leading on you know all kinds of issues is we need to look at our Minnesota-based corporations. General Mills came out for marriage equality, and there were others. We have got darn good corporations based here in these twin cities in the state of Minnesota that are willing to lead. And if we push them a little more, they'll lead even more. I really appreciate, yes. I really appreciate uh, corporations for, like, really in the city, like, I have sat down with executive leaders from Target um, who are really super committed to pushing um, progressive policies in the private sector. And really, when Target does do it, they do shift the whole game because they're so large. Um, so, and I also want to name that the, one of the biggest reasons why I believe I'm on the same page as you, that really the queer movement is really going to come to life and the trans movement is really going to come to life is actually here. Um, after Andrea and I was, were elected, everybody was like, oh snap, I'll move to Minneapolis. Um, and Really, but even why I moved here was because of the reputation for it being a safe place to be a queer black person. Um, the reason why the I feel like the revolution will happen here is because of the queer revolutionaries who all, who live here and who have made Minneapolis what it is today. And so um, I, I I so hear you, and I'm all about it. Like I, I feel the same way. I lived in the San Francisco Bay Area. I went to a women's college when I was a queer woman. So like I'm like extra down. I was like. Yeah, I was in a women's college, and I was, <laughs> and so it's pretty liberal out there to say the least. And I have to say that here, um, that there is like it's a special brew of energy. It is like right now um, between generations. Like my dad was a young person during the civil rights movement, and I see um, how the connections are there between generations time right now but history is malleable like right now it's nebulous because there is an opportunity to shape ship it shape it and change it in a way um that changes the course of history and so um and i believe that really right now in this like bizarro reality that we live in in the United States. It's like somehow I look to my left and to my right and I'm like, whoa, we have a really great city and region here. So. 
on that hey, incredible. Hey, listen, no, just, I'm just, stopping the just, show. No, just one thing. Success. Right? Oh. <laughs> okay. We'll take that. We'll, okay. we'll take that. <laughs> All right. A big round of applause. Councilmember Philippe Cunningham, Charlie Brown. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend a show in person or even work with us, you can find out more information at our website at www.t2p2.net. This activity was made possible by the voters of Minnesota through a grant from the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council, thanks to a legislative appropriation from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund.